You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. Uh, we took a little bit of a break because we both traveled to Arizona, but we've got a lot of stuff we want to catch up on today. Alex Cobb is signed. Uh, we have some interesting numbers on Yasiel Puig and another A. I know we've talked about the A's a lot, but I'm very excited about the A's. Our friend Anthony Kestrovins put out his top 10 lineups. We have some spring training, exit velocity notables, and then I want to talk a little bit about pitchers who should throw more secondary pitches. But first, uh, we had a great time in Arizona separately. Matt and I were actually, I think, crossing each other in the air as I was coming home and he was going out there. Uh, I presented at Sabre with Darren Woolman and Tom Tango, uh, and that was a blast. And I learned that a uh, a lot of the people at Sabre actually listen to this podcast. Which you sound I, surprised no, that people no, listen to the podcast? I, I appreciate it very much. I learned that a, uh, a sizable portion of the Japanese baseball media listens to the podcast because they came up and talked to me. Um, I know that some members of... Big in Japan. Big, well, that's right. I know that some very smart members of very smart baseball teams' front offices are listening. So, I mean, I think that's very cool. And I guess we need to we need to up our game, I suppose, is the way I would put it. Um, but that's okay. The season's about here. How was your Arizona experience? Excellent. I got to um, see uh, Shohei Otani ground out to shortstop, and I purchased a <laughs> Otani beer koozie, which was uh, the uh, the best impulse buy I've made in a long time. <laughs> I didn't know that, and um, I wish it was here. But anyway, Arizona was a blast. Uh, Saber was a blast. We teased a lot of the interesting stuff that we will hopefully have up and out uh, over the next couple weeks and months, and some of which we've talked on this show about before. But first, Alex Cobb has finally signed and uh, went to the Orioles, which makes sense. The Orioles, as everybody in the world knows, needs some starting pitching help. Four years, $57 million. It covers his age, 30 to 33 seasons. Uh, we've talked about Cobb on the show a, a couple times before, and I think you know the idea about Cobb. He was once uh, a very strong pitcher, had Tommy John surgery, has come back, and really hasn't been as effective because he's not throwing his split change as much. Uh, last year, of 134 pitchers who threw 100 innings, his 17% strikeout rate was 107th. That's not great. Ground ball rate dropped from 53% to 48%, also not great. Uh, our upcoming StatCast ERA estimator will have him at 458, also not that great. Uh, a little worse than the league average from 424. But here's what I think is interesting. He's going to what you would consider a worse pitcher's park, right? More of a hitter's park from Tampa Bay to Baltimore. Oh, for sure. Uh, it, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at that. You know, for example, if you look at the uh, park factors from ESPN and Fangraphs, they both have Tampa Bay in the 20 to 25 range for, uh, you know, hardest hitters parks in terms of runs scored. Same thing for home runs. Whereas Baltimore is generally considered, you know, back half of the, the top 10, I would say. This is not a favorable move for uh, Alex Cobb in terms of ballparks. Also not in terms of uh, outfield defense either. Oh, uh, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. So no more Kiermaier. No more Kiermaier. More, more uh, you know, Jones is okay, but more Trumbo and Trey Mancini, I guess. And Yeah, not not the best uh, combo for him, particularly someone who's been allowing more fly balls as the years have as the years have gone on. So what you're saying is neither one of us are that excited about it. Oh, listen, he's an upgrade, right? Because they needed to start a pitching depth. So even though I don't think he's a, a ace or even like a, a top two or three, uh, they were pretty thin in the rotation. So I like him better than Chris Tillman. I like him better than Andrew Kashner. That's an upgrade. Yeah, this sounds ridiculously snarky, but like when I look at the Orioles rotation, I see Gaussman, Bundy, Cobb, Kashner, Tillman. I'm like, wow, that's a list of guys that looked like they were going to break out in about 2014. You could have just stopped there. 
that's a list of guys. <laughs> but like these guys were all once really highly thought of prospects. I was definitely have been really high on Kevin Gaussman. It would not surprise me if at some point in his career he has um, you know, one of those like, you know, four or five war seasons in him. Same thing with Bunny. The fact that Bunny survived all of last year and stayed healthy is a great sign. I mean, you know, he's probably not gonna live up to the heights that were predicted of him when he like, you know, in the minor his like first year in the minors when he like didn't allow a run for I think uh, his first 30 innings or something in a ball or something crazy like that. But for me, the Orioles, once they decided not to trade Machado, they might as well try and win this year, right? Whether or not you think Cobb is the best way for them to have done that, they certainly made their team better for this year. I agree with you in that. But I guess in the the vacuum of this one move, yes, I agree. Uh, I don't know if what they've done overall is them quote unquote going for it though, because they really they brought in Kashner, they brought in Tillman, and they brought in Cobb, and that obviously makes the rotation better. Uh, but if you look at the projections, right now the Orioles are notorious for outplaying projections. If you were to look at the years 2012 to 2016, they outperformed their Fangraphs projections by 58 games, and that kind of became a yearly joke. Like nobody likes the Orioles. Orioles are going to do better. Uh, last year, Fangraphs actually had them at 80 wins, and they ended up with 75 wins. So they underperformed a little bit. Even right now, they are projected to be tied with Tampa Bay for fourth in the AL East at 78 wins. And I think that sounds about right. Right? I think. But we've talked about the AL wildcard picture before. Um, that like it's a it's it's pretty murky. And while I'm not that bullish on Cobb, it's not, it's not like crazy to think of him being like a real asset for them this year and them being in that mix for the wildcard spot. So once they decided not to trade Machado in the offseason, I think this is kind of a good move for them. Like, you might as well try and win. It's it's a perfectly fine move. As I've said, I, I think Lance Lynn is uh, probably a better pitcher, and he did not get nearly the deal. But we know this winter was bizarre. So one interesting note that I, I thought was really fascinating from our friend Jeff Sullivan about this contract. So the deal was for $57 million. But there's approximately $20 million that are deferred, and because the time value of money will change, the net present value is considered to be about $47 million. Why does that matter to anybody? Because if the deal was just for a straight $47 million, then Tampa Bay, who had given Alex Cobb a qualifying offer, would have received uh, pick number 75. But because it's over $50 million, Tampa Bay instead gets pick number 31. So if, if the Orioles had just not deferred this money, they would have hurt a divisional rival. But by doing so, they actually gave Tampa Bay a much better draft pick. Yeah, it's funny. Like, like the big winner this week was the Rays, right? Yes. Like, I'm sure once Lance, when when Lance Lynn signed for one and twelve, I'm sure that like, you know, Rays GM Eric Neander was probably like, well, we're we're not getting, <laughs> you know, a comp pick after the first round at this point. There's no way Cobb's going to get fifty million based on also what else everything else has happened this offseason. So when Cobb goes for more than fifty million and they get what's going to be the thirty first pick in the draft, like. That's a pretty nice little bonus for the Rays right there. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. This is a win for the Rays. Um, and, you know, the Orioles, this might be their, I don't want to say it's their last year to quote, unquote, go for it, because as we said, the projections aren't that great, but Machado's a free agent after the year. Jones, Britton, Brad Brock, and an underrated aspect here, both Dan Duquette and Buck Showalter are free agents after the upcoming year. There could be a lot of changes in Baltimore. Pe- people will say I'm crazy. I'm not ruling out Machado staying. There's a lot of money coming off the books in Baltimore. I would not entirely rule it out. I agree with you that you're crazy. Listen, uh, one more thing I wanted to talk about. I know the spring training stats don't mean anything, even though later on in the show we will talk about spring training metrics. I noticed last night that Aaron Judge hit two homers against the Orioles, right? It was against Jason Gurka and Nestor Cortez, and I don't know if either one of those guys are actually going to pitch for the Orioles this year. So this is not really an indicator of anything. 
but it just reminded me what Aaron Judge did to the Orioles last year. Last year, 19 games, 85 plate appearances. He hit 426, 588 on base, a 1,049 slugging with 11 homers, and my favorite part, 24 walks and 18 strikeouts. That was all Aaron Judge against the Orioles, uh, and that was the highest OPS of any player versus one team last year with a minimum of 50 plate appearances. And I thought to myself, well, I got to go back and see how good this is all time. And I came up with maybe my favorite leaderboard that I've ever done for this show. If you up the minimum of 85 plate appearances for one hitter against one team in the history of baseball, which I think for baseball reference, they have back to 1908, it was the second best player on team damage ever, right? In terms of OPS. So it was 1637 OPS for Aaron Judge against the Orioles last year. That was second best. The best all time, Babe Ruth in 1921 in 1720 OPS against the Cleveland Indians. Here's the top 10 here. Ruth, Judge, Ruth, Williams, Garrig, Garrig, Mays, Fox, DiMaggio. That is an amazing list. And then Harry Heilman. And Harry Heilman, who's actually, you know, nobody remembers Harry Heilman. He's actually a really good player. I, I saw someone joke on Twitter this morning that Aaron Judge should uh, name his eventual, assuming he ever has kids, uh, his firstborn Camden. The way that, <laughs> the way that Chipper Jones named his first kid Shay. That's amazing. <laughs> um, although I once looked and saw that uh, Chipper Jones actually had better number at Veterans Stadium. Yes. But I guess uh, Veterans Jones isn't quite as catchy that. as uh, Shay so, Jones. Listen, I'm not going to put any meaningful value on uh, Aaron Judge hitting Jason Gurka or Nestor Cortez, but... Early, anytime he suits up against the Orioles, I have to drop everything and watch it immediately. And, uh, you know, listen, we have a leaderboard where he's up there with Babe Ruth and Ted Williams. So, moving on to uh, Yasiel Puig. And uh, everybody likes to talk about Yasiel Puig. We have some interesting StatCast numbers on him. StatCast, of course, is powered by Amazon Web Services. Did you know that Yasiel Puig had a good year last year? I feel like, you know, he had this massive debut in, what, 2013 it was, and then very many ups and downs got sent to the minors, obviously some off-field issues, all this stuff. Last year, uh, 346 on base, 487 slugging, career-high 28 home runs. He had a 117 weighted runs created plus. He basically had the same season on offense as Francisco Lindor, who had a 118 weighted runs created plus. And if you look at his season, if you split Yasiel Puig's season in half, he had an okay first half, 103 weighted runs created plus. Uh, of the 166 guys who qualified, that was 98th. So 60% of hitters were better in the first half. The second half, he was fantastic. 374 on base, 533 slugging, 136 weighted runs created plus. Only 20% of hitters in the second half were better. He was better than Bellinger. He was better than Jose Ramirez. He was better than Rizzo. And in the first two rounds of the playoffs, he was probably the best Dodger hitter. Uh, hit 414, a 514 on base, 655 slugging in the National League DS and CS, though, of course, he struggled a bit in the World Series against some very good Astros uh, pitching. He was the best second-half hitter on the Dodgers. And so my question to you and to everybody who might have read the article I wrote about this is he's only 27 years old. Is there more to Yasiel Puig? I know he's, he's like the opposite of consistent, right? So maybe that's a kind of a loaded question. Uh, which Yasiel Puig are we going to see next year and i have some stack guys data to back this up um i'm pretty bullish on puig i've always been a fan um and seeing what he did in the second half of last year i think it kind of went overlooked because the dodgers just kind of went out to such a big lead it was sort of like people kind of just were like oh we'll we'll revisit the dodgers once it was clear they you know, for a while it was like well, maybe they're going to challenge the uh 2001 mariners for most wins in a season but once that was clear they weren't going to do that People kind of just like, well, well, we'll revisit them in the postseason. I was definitely of that group. And, of course, like during that time, we basically went and had the best run of his career since his ridiculous first two months of his career. Yeah, and he, he just looked different doing it. And I mean that in a couple of ways. Like, he looked better at the plate. But also, if you watched him, you might have noticed a little bit of, of 
discipline and patience, which is not really what you expect from Yasiel Puig. He kind of stopped swinging at first pitches as the year went on. If you look at the first four months of the season uh, on 0-0 counts, he would swing at anywhere between 32 and 45% of first pitches in each of the four months. In August, that was 22%. In the postseason, that was 16%. And if you remember it, some of those first pitches in the postseason, not only did he not swing at them, he made it very clear that there was no reality in which he was going to move the bat off his shoulder. He would just stand there, like the baseball term is spin on it. Now, I'm not actually sure that that is enough for the, like, the way he liked watching these first pitches. Uh, for the first four years of his career, he swung at the first pitch 43% of the time. The MLB average is 28, so obviously that's much more aggressive than usual. In the first half last year, he swung at the first pitch 37%. In the second half, he only swung at the first pitch 27%. Now, if you know me, you know I'm usually a proponent of swinging at the first pitch. I don't like to watch the first pitch go by if it's the best pitch you're going to see. If you've got a good pitch, crush it. Like that's great. And that actually, across uh, uh, baseball, and Matt Kelly has a piece coming up on MLB.com about this uh, later today, showing how across the league production on the first two pitches—not just first pitch, but first two pitches—has just like skyrocketed the last few years. Yeah, and this is going to be a big thing in Boston this year. Alex Cora has talked about this a lot with guys like Bogarts and Betts being more aggressive if you see a hittable first pitch. Now, Puig did the exact opposite of that. Uh, and that makes sense, I think, in his case, in the first half last year. So the way we break down the strike zone is we've got the traditional in zone, but we've also got the edges of the zone, the, the kind of hittable could go either way pitches. Uh, if you combine both of those as the quote unquote strike zone in the first half, nearly 90% of qualified hitters saw more pitches on, the, on a 0-0 count in the strike zone or on the edges uh, than Puig did, which basically means that pitchers knew he was going to swing. He was going to swing at it no matter what. So why throw him something good? Let him get down 0-1. It appears that he noticed this. And stop swinging at the first pitch. And I don't, I don't want to like overplay the fact that stopping swinging at first pitches makes you good. Uh, but it was an interesting trend when you look at the uh, success rate of his season. I there, think. And there was also four, four stats about Puig last year that really jump out to me. Highest walk rate of his career. Lowest strikeout rate of his career. Highest ISO of his career. And lowest betting average on balls in play of his career. So it's sort of like he sort of definitely like in the, like a lot of different ways sort of just became more mature as a hitter. And we saw him getting more production when he put the ball in play and also taking more walks. Right. And there's this one interesting stat cast metric that this was the first thing I found that made me start thinking about Puig. Uh, if you look at hitting the ball hard in the air, right? There's a pretty good quote from Puig last year to, uh, I forget, the LA Times or somebody, where he was he was basically like, uh, you know, I need to keep the ball off the ground or there won't be any money in my wallet, right? Like, obviously, everybody's trying to hit the ball in the air, but we also know that it really only matters that much if you hit the ball in the air and you also hit it hard. So... I looked at all of the players who had uh, who hit the ball hard and in the air, which I, I defined as above 95 miles an hour and above 10 degrees. So the expected weighted on base for that combination was 848. It's obviously very, very good. And if you look at the leaderboard for the highest expected weighted on base on these hard hit batted balls in the air, I think you could probably guess the top three if I didn't tell you who these three were. Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, and J.D. Martinez. The least surprising thing in the world. Also on the top 10, Miguel Sano, Gary Sanchez, Mike Trout, uh, also unsurprising. Number four was Yasiel Puig. And now he did not have the fourth best overall actual production because, you know, some great plays happen. Obviously, there's some bad ball luck. There's some ballpark effects. But just in terms of the expected outcomes, when he hit the ball hard and in the air, he had the fourth highest expected weighted on base. And it's a leaderboard that really carries some value with me when you consider that the guys on the top, again, were Judge, Stanton. And Martinez, his ground ball percentage did fall from 51% in the first half to 45% in the second half. So, easier said than done, I understand. If he hits the ball hard in the air and continues the plate discipline that he showed last year, I feel like there's still more to Yasiel Puig. 
And the Dodgers are really, really good. <laughs> of course the Dodgers. Even without Justin Turner, uh, who broke his wrist, I remember saying, you know, it's a bummer. Turner's a stud, uh, but this is going to cost them, like, a win. It, mean, it means, you know, there's a series of dominoes that are going to happen here for Scythe the third. It means more plate appearances for Kike Hernandez and, and Tolls, and, you know, maybe Matt Kemp, I guess. But there's so much depth there. I don't want to say it doesn't matter because he's great, but I kind of feel like it doesn't matter that much. Now, I skipped one guy on this list here. Here is the actual top five for the highest expected weighted on base on our hit batted balls in the air. Judge is number one. John Carlos Stanton's number two. J.D. Martinez, number three. Puig is number four. Chad Pinder, who is a player I definitely did not make up, is number five on that list. And, uh, you know, we talked about how interesting I find the A's a couple weeks ago. Chad Pinder is in Oakland A. It's another reason to be excited. Yeah, we joked about Chad Pinder last year. I think when I said that the A's had what I would think would be like the best slow pitch softball team in the league, when they had him and Chris Davis and Ryan Healy, who they've subsequently traded, uh, Matt Olson. Pinder's interesting, and part of why the A's have a sneaky good lineup. In fact, Anthony Kastrovitz, MLB.com, ranked his top 10 lineups in baseball this week, and he slotted the A's in at number 10. And I saw a lot of comments on social media saying, A's, number 10, really? But. I, I buy that, 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 I, I buy too. I, I totally buy I like the A's lineup a lot. I like the A's bullpen a lot. I'm not so sure about the A's rotation. There's a lot of questions there. Obviously, now they've, they've had some injuries. Uh, Jarrell Cotton, unfortunately, just uh, injured his elbow. So uh, the rotation is going to be a weakness. But I really like there's a lot of depth and there's a lot of moving parts. And Chad Pinder is one of these guys. And he's only going to turn 26 next week. So uh, he's not that old, obviously. He was a second-round pick in 2013 out of Virginia Tech. Last year, he made starts 28 in right field, 18 at shortstop, 13 at second, 7 at DH, 4 in center, 2 in left, and he's also now possibly their backup first baseman behind Olsen because Ryan Healy got traded uh, to Seattle. If you remember last year in the first half, he slugged almost 500, right? He slugged 490, uh, only 289 on base. I don't think anyone expects him to be like the next hitting superstar, but he had a massive change in his ground ball rate from the minors. It dropped by a lot. You know, he started trying to hit the ball in the air. Second half wasn't as good, but he had uh, some issues with the concussion, with the hamstring. And, you know, if you look at the way this A's lineup is put together, you know, Matt Joyce is definitely kind of a platoon guy. You don't let him hit lefties, right? I mean, a lot of these guys, you know, Jed Lowry was really good last year. When let is he let ever... The league doubles. When is he ever, you know, healthy for an entire season? It's rare. You know, there's a lot of moving pieces here. Not that you're going to probably platoon Matt Olson, but there's some playing time there if you want to get him out for a day. Uh, you know, we don't know what Dustin Fowler is going to be. You know, he's coming off that severe injury. There's a lot of playing time here is the point. And there's there's a lot of talent. We, we both really liked the Piscotti deal for them. I mean, the thing about the A's lineup, looking at right now, it's, it's basically, come, it'll be Simeon, Joyce, Lowry, Chris Davis, Matt Olson, Piscotti, Matt Chapman, Jonathan Lucroy, Dustin Fowler. That's probably their everyday lineup, right? I was looking on at uh, steamer projections on Fangraphs. They have seven hitters projected to have a weighted runs created plus above average of above 100. And Pinder isn't even, isn't even among that group. His actually projection is is well below 100. I said I didn't look. I'm trying to see which two didn't. I'm assuming Fowler did not, and maybe uh, Semyon did not of this like. No, Semyon 103. The names are the names that are above 100 are Davis, Olson, Joyce, Lucroy, Piscotti, Semyon, Lowry. Chapman is at 98. Oh, I'll take the over on that. Yeah, but so uh, it's exactly so. You've got Pinder, a guy who can play a few different positions and has some a batted pro, batted ball profile that suggests he could be an impact bat who can, you know, move around, and he's not even, you know, 
part of like the equation. He's the, you don't even have to wish. You don't even have to like assume he's going to be good and see a good lineup. Yeah, as I've said a few times, between uh, our fascination with the A's, between the Astros and Dodgers being the two best teams in baseball, most likely between Shohei Otane in Anaheim and our fascination with the Padres, I am going to be watching so much West Coast baseball uh, this year. Now, there are still a few days left in spring training. We have another week left before opening day, and we will hopefully do one more show before then and get into real season prediction mode. And if we've learned anything about spring training, it's that 99.9% of stats don't really matter. Uh, One stat that might matter, just because it's fascinating, I don't know if this is still true because I didn't look last night, uh, but Mike Trout has not struck out. Still has not struck out. Still has not struck out. That's I have no words for this. Like Mike Trout has gone an entire month without a strike <laughs> although we actually we looked this up because we were kind of curious and as it turns out the last few years there have been a few guys that have kind of had ridiculous spring training strikeout streaks like jb shuck went like 67 at bats without striking out you know escobar sure. did, did as well but those guys aren't mike trout true like the idea that mike trout who's already the best player we're probably ever going to see could somehow have improved his contact rate it blows my mind but here's what I actually think is interesting. You know, I, I don't care about batting average, you know, ever, but especially not in spring training. But I do like the things that are uh, skills, the things that you don't need to have a large sample size to see. And one of those things is exit velocity. You know, it, it's a skill. Billy Hamilton does not have the skill to hit a ball 118 miles an hour. He just doesn't. But a lot of guys like Aaron Judge do, Giancarlo Stanton do. So what I did is I, I looked back and I looked at the guys who have had a maximum exit velocity in spring that would have ranked in their top three in the 2017 regular season. Now, let's be completely fair about something. The StatCast technology is only in Salt River Fields, which is shared by the Rockies and the Diamondbacks. So uh, it's very heavily tilted between those two rosters and you know anyone who came through there. So this is not exactly a fair comparison of everybody in baseball. But if you look at some of these guys, it's actually really interesting. Uh, some of the names who have already hit the ball harder this spring than they did all of last year Let's also say that the Arizona desert is a favorable hitting climate, which I think helps them a little bit. For example, Christian Yelich hit a ball at 114.4 miles an hour the other day. That would have been his hardest hit ball of the entire 2017 season, which I don't know. Does that mean anything? I guess I can't say conclusively, but it's it's a good sign, right? Like if you're, it certainly for, suggests he's healthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So I like you know Ryan McMahon is a good one. Uh, 114 miles an hour. Now he only had 14 balls in play last year, but. I kind of think he should be the starting first baseman in Colorado. I would put Ian Desmond to the bench or on the waiver wire. I know he's got the contract, but play Ryan McMahon. If the Rockies want to compete this year, they they need Ryan McMahon to be a guy. They need a lot of things to go. Yeah. And it's got to start uh, with Ryan McMahon. And it, I, I like the angle about you know health because you look up and down. Goldschmidt was a really great year last year, but I, I think he was injured in September, didn't play that well. Had a ball the other day, 111.5 miles an hour. That would have been his third hardest uh, of last year. Hunter Pence hit one, 111.1 miles an hour. would have been his third hardest hit ball of last year. Uh, Trevor Story popped one at 113. It would have been his hardest hit ball of last year. Again, these are all Rockies, pretty much all Diamondbacks, because just that's the And some of these might have been against double-A pitchers. So we, you know, sure. we, we take that, you know, it's all... But Huge it's... grain of salt here. You know, A.J. Pollock hit one, 110.6 miles an hour. would have been his hardest hit ball of last year. So, you know, for some of these guys that you're kind of hoping they'll be healthy and productive, you can take this as a, a heavily caveated grain of salt possibly good sign heading into the season i don't know if i can uh, couch that any further than that. <laughs> um finally let's talk about the kind of pitches that 
pitchers throw. So last week I did a piece about uh, seven things I all but guarantee with an asterisk will happen in baseball this year. <laughs> Warning, this is not a guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but it was really more about uh, you know it, larger trends in baseball. For example, the fastballs you see will be thrown with more velocity because that happens every year. Uh, I, I predicted the Yankees will break the team home run record. And I also looked at fastball percentage. And if you might not have noticed this, There have been fewer and fewer fastballs thrown in baseball pretty much every single year of pitch tracking. Last year, only 55% of of pitches were fastballs, which I'm including four-seamers and two-seamers and sinkers. And I think we know why that is. We talked about this with Rich Hill a lot last year. Players and pitchers are trying to kind of counteract the uh, home run surge and launch angle, and they're trying to get into more, uh, let's call it bendy stuff, you know, harder to square up like that. It's it's become okay to not have a fastball as a primary It's also not just that. It's it's pitchers realizing... Well, if a breaking ball is my best pitch, why don't I throw that? Well, that was the Rich Hill story, yeah. right? He was, Brian Bannister basically said to him, look, your curveball's great. Throw it 50% of the time. And it's like a head explosion moment. Because how many pitching coaches would say, no, you gotta, you got to establish the fastball? You know, this goes back to the, uh, the Josh Donaldson video we've talked about where he says, you know, if, you're, if your youth coach is telling you, try and hit the ball, hit down the ball, don't listen. Right. And well, I wouldn't say, you know, youth, you know, curve balls, obviously they could, you know, maybe put damage on your arm and whatnot. But if you're, a, if you're a minor league player who's struggling, but you have a great breaking ball, maybe it's time to say, you know what? I should be throwing my breaking ball more than I throw my fastball, even though conventional wisdom has always been work off the fastball, pitch off the fastball, yada, yada, yada. I mean, think about Lance McCullers throwing, what was it 24 consecutive curveballs in the, in the postseason? Last year, uh, dating back to 2010, we had the highest single season slider rate season. Chris Archer threw his slider 45% of the time. We had, uh, in terms of curveball percentage, the two last two seasons had the two highest curveball rate seasons. McCullers last year, 48%. Hill the year before, 47%. Uh, you look at someone like Corey Kluber, you know, his breaking pitch, whether you call it a curve or a slider. He threw that 27% of the time, but that was as much as he threw any other pitch. Uh, Kershaw, I think, is a great example. When he came up, you really kind of thought of him as more of a, uh, a flamethrower, I guess, when he was younger. He still throws hard, but not quite the way he used to. And if you were to look at his four-seam rate, it's been dropping consistently pretty much every single year. In 2010, he threw it 71% of the time. It would fall down to 65 and 60 and 53 and so on. And last year, he threw his four-seamer only 46% of the time. I mean, that's that's pretty noticeable. When, when Clayton Kershaw, the best pitcher of his generation, with a legit fastball... The guy who can still well, he can still throw ninety four when yeah. he dials it up yeah, is throwing his fastball less than fifty percent of the time. That tells you something. Exactly right. Uh, it really, he's a fantastic example to follow. So I thought this was interesting. I thought, well, who can we find who has a let's call it a poor fastball and also a strong secondary pitch and should really go all in on the secondary pitch? So uh, that's what I did. And if we're going to caveat this one as well, we we understand there's more to this than just picking a pitch like. A fastball can set up the secondary pitch. There's sequencing involved. That all matters. Uh, but, you know, this is kind of, uh, I, I think, for fun. And I'll be interested to see if some of these guys actually do this. So what I did is I looked at everybody who threw 1,500 total pitches last year. So we're talking about 150 guys. Uh, I defined a, uh, let's call it a poor fastball, as one that had an expected weighted on base above 330. The major league average overall was about 320. And I needed a guy who also had a good secondary pitch. So I needed to find a secondary pitch with an expected weighted on base of 300 or below and throwing at least 10% of the time, just so it's not like a, you know one or two times a season. I actually found a lot of guys who qualified, surprisingly so, more than I would have thought. And um, some of them already started doing this, like Patrick Corbin's slider. We started seeing him more in the second half of last year. He should be, I don't want to say 90% slider, a lot of sliders. Uh, there's, there's a lot of guys who qualified, but there's just kind of a few I wanted to pull out and touch on, and I'm going to write this up later. The first we've already talked about in the past here, Garrett Cole. We, we talked about this a ton when Garrett Cole was going to get traded. His four-seamer is really fast, but it's really straight. It's got average spin rate, and uh, his his really 
more effective pitches are his slider and his curveball, even in 2015 when he was really good. His four-seamer uh, had a 320 expected weighted on base. His slider had a 219. Again, four-seamers tend to have a higher number here because, uh, you know, the, the put-away pitches kind of are the breaking pitches, but you get the idea I'm trying to go for And here. this seems like, I mean, almost a foregone conclusion. He's going to the Astros. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With McCullers, he throws all those curves. Um, Charlie Morton uh, went crazy with his curveball. This seems like... You know, a lock for I, him I should to... have put that as a guarantee. <laughs> like this, this one, there is no caveat here. I guarantee he will throw fewer fastballs this year. So I thought he was interesting, but we've talked about him. Uh, a couple of the other guys that popped up on my list here: Jordan Zimmerman. We know he's had a couple of really tough years in Detroit. Did I see he's their opening day starter this upcoming year? I think. Yeah, it was. It was. It was weird too because like I saw a quote where it was, you know. He said, I was kind of surprised. I thought they'd go with Fulmer, but, you know, Fulmer will have plenty of opening day starts. It's kind of like pitchers, it's, you know, with pitcher injuries, you never know. <laughs> Fulmer's already had some arm concerns. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean obviously, don't wish, wish ill on anyone. It was just sort of a funny thing to say. Yeah. Like, pitcher, you think it'd be, be a little more self-aware about uh, the tenuous nature of pitcher pitcher futures. But anyway. Well, we know, we know Zimmerman's had a couple of really tough years in Detroit. Hasn't gone very well for him. Uh, partially, his fastball velocity is down. When he was at his best with Washington, his velocity was 94.6 at its peak. Last year, it was 92.7. And he has thrown his fastball, his four-seam fastball, less already. It's gone from uh, 70% a couple years ago to 48% last year. And my question is, why stop now? His four-seamers last year, it was not it was not good. Four-seamers and sinkers. Uh, his four-seamer, he threw 43% of the time. Allowed a 414 weighted on base against. Sinker, 11% of the time, 422 weighted on base against. His slider is still pretty good, and that was his best pitch when he was really good for, for Washington. Uh, he threw it a quarter of the time, a 271 weighted on base, a 317 expected weighted on base. Last year, it had the number one swing rate among any slider, and this wasn't even a good year for him. So, you know, it may be too late for him, but why not at this point? If you've got a slider that looks like it could be useful, I want to see more of it. And even at his best, his fastball, while it had velocity, was never a, a- Put away no, pitch. and it's the kind of thing. Like it set up his slider. When he finished fifth in the Cy Young in 2014, his slider had the third best swing rate in baseball behind Kershaw and Carrasco. Those are pretty good names to be up there with. Uh, but even last year uh, against the slider, 227, 264, 359. I don't know if it'll work, but I definitely think it's it's worth it. And you know, as we said with McCullers and Hill, uh, you don't have to establish with the fastball. The game has changed so much in that regard. Uh, a couple other guys I wanted to mention here. Trevor Cahill. Do you remember that Trevor Cahill was actually pretty good last year for the Padres? I do. In the first half, he was really good. Uh, and then he got traded to uh, Kansas City and not so good. 822 ERA with the Royals, six strikeouts per nine after 11 strikeouts per nine with, Kansas, with San Diego. He was traded as like rotation upgrade for Kansas City when they were still in the race. Yes. And uh, he recently signed with, wait for it, Oakland. And he talked to Jane Lee, our MLB.com A's beat reporter. And his quote was pretty telling to me. I felt at the beginning I was pitching as well as I ever have. Okay, I'll buy it. And then I kept getting hurt and pitched through some stuff, and it just didn't really work out the second half. <laughs> no, it didn't. No, it did not. Um, now, I think part of that was maybe you know injuries or fatigue, as he's referring to. His command wasn't there. But he also changed his pitch movement, uh, pitch usage a little bit. When he went to Kansas City, he upped his changeup rate from 20% to 28%. He dropped his slider rate by 7%. He dropped his curveball rate by 7%. And it turns out that his curveball's really, really good. And, you know, when, it, when it's at its best, it's been good. Uh, and he's upped it the last couple of years from 13% to 19% to 22%. Again, just like the other guys, don't stop now. His curveball last year, a 194 weighted on base and a 195 expected weighted on base. 
Uh, the last two guys I want to talk about. I, the first one is Kyle Gibson. It just he's been kicking around forever with the Twins, and it never really seems like he's put it together. But he keeps persisting in that rotation. I didn't realize this till I looked it up today. He's had back-to-back seasons of a 5.07 ERA, and he's, he's see this is consistent. <laughs> well, that is consistent. Uh, and I, I guess I wasn't paying that much attention to him at the end of the year, but in his final eight starts last year, he had a 2.92 ERA. He had a 46 to 10 strikeout to walk ratio. That's a nice step up. So, what changed you might be asking? Well. Let's look at his months. May, for example, he threw his curveball 24% of the time and his slider 6% of the time. In September, he threw his curveball 5% of the time and his slider 22% of the time. He had one of the most hittable fastballs in all of baseball. Of every pitcher who threw their four-seamer at least 500 times, he had the second highest expected weighted on base at 442, which is a massive number. His slider was actually pretty good, 287. And for the full season, not just for those last eight starts, he had a top 10 whiff per swing rate on his slider. It hasn't worked in the past, what he's been doing. We saw maybe flashes of it at the end of the last year. We, we certainly know the Twins could use uh, a pitcher, a more starting pitching. Uh, I want to see more sliders from Kyle Gibson. For sure. I mean, when you consider the 507 ERA, yeah. there's no reason for him. It's not even like this one of these situations where he's being stubborn and sticking to something because it's working. It's like, it wasn't working. Might as well switch it up. I was only aware of his uh, late season surge because uh, twin super fan Aaron Gleeman was geeking out about it on Twitter <laughs> regularly. But that was the only reason I had, had any awareness that he was uh, pitching that well down the stretch. And the last guy I want to talk about is Chad Cool. Uh, and I think he's interesting because he was with Garrett Cole in Pittsburgh, but he remains in Pittsburgh. So I don't know if he's going to get the same kind of chance to change that Cole will by having traded. Uh, if you don't know anything about Chad Cool, he throws really hard. His average sinker is 95.9 miles an hour. He's touched 100. But his sinker does not get grounders. He's got a bottom 10 ground ball rate, 40%, which is actually not that great. So far in his career, he's been a 65% fastball guy and a 35% other pitches kind of guy. And if you look at his fastballs, as I said, it's hard, but it's kind of straight. Uh, 402 expected weighted on base on the four-seamer, 369 on the sinker, 201 on the slider. So I feel like... Oh, really? Yes. Hmm. Well, he reminds me a little bit of Carlos Carrasco, who I, I could have included here, but I didn't. Carlos Carrasco has some of the nastiest breaking stuff I think you'll ever, ever see. And he also throws 96, but it's 96 and straight. So the fastball itself is not very good. But if you're thinking about it, and then all of a sudden here comes some breaking pitch that dives into the dirt and makes you look foolish, that's kind of what I want to see from Chad Cool. I want to see the fastball more as a reminder that the fastball exists rather than the primary pitch it's been. I want to see more sliders from Chad Cool. Maybe we will. Maybe we will. Uh, that is our show for this week. That is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. We will catch you next week for a season preview show. Thanks for listening. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.